continuing on in our new series in the book of Acts. And this morning we're going to look at Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Last week we saw that just before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples, actually he ordered his disciples to remain in Jerusalem until they were clothed with power from on high. And then as they were watching Jesus, he ascended into heaven. They watched him being lifted up. Two angels came to disciples and say, why are you staring into heaven? He's going to come back in the same way. And then we pick it up from there in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Elphaz and Simon the Zealots and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of the persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, el that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness of his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you once again for your word. May you send your Holy Spirit to illuminate your word so that we can have a greater understanding of it, so that we can understand what you're calling us to do. Father, each one of us needs to be clear about what we're to be committed to. And Father, at this time, I also want to pray for Stephen Coney. Um, I want to ask that your hand would be upon our brother, your hand would be upon his family, Deb, and his children. May you guide them as well. Father, would you use them mightily to bring about a work in Creosha? Creosha? Father, it would be a joy to hear of a revival taking place 
in that nation. And Father, we also want to ask that a great work would take place in Fox Lake, Johnsburg, McHenry, Crystal Lake, Antioch, Round Lake, Round Lake Beach, and a number of other areas. Canada to the north, Mexico to the south. Father, help us to see the role that we have to play as followers of Jesus Christ who are laboring and ministering to see the kingdom advanced. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Lord willing, next week we are going to look at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, where Jesus pours out his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now, there are many different ways to describe Pentecost, and many of them have to do with uh, your theological circle. Uh, But sometimes Pentecost has been described as a second blessing. And if that's a second blessing, then I guess what takes place in Acts 4 is a third blessing. And then what happens in Acts 10, I guess from one perspective, could be a fourth blessing. Um, It's also been uh, described as being clothed with power from on high. We saw that in Luke. In Acts 1.5, it's referred to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2.4, it's described as the filling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Regardless of what term you want to use, if such an event were to take place today, we would probably describe it as a revival. A mighty, sovereign work of God where His Holy Spirit comes down upon His people in such a dramatic and obvious and visible way that dozens, perhaps hundreds of people are transformed in a matter of minutes. Hundreds could come to Jesus Christ through one sermon. Thousands could come to Jesus Christ through one sermon. And hundreds and thousands of believers could be touched by the Holy Spirit so that their lives would be forever transformed because of what God does. Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield preached in the 18th century, and God used them under his direction to bring about a tremendous revival that we call the Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards is known most for his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And in that sermon, he described God's anger, God's wrath against sinners. And he described it in actually quite dramatic fashion. One illustration that he used among many is that sinners are like a spider dangling from a thread. And he said, God is holding you in his hand and he's holding you over the flames of hell. And the only thing that sustains you is his mere sovereign pleasure upon you. And if he were to let you fall, you would be plunged to an eternal damnation. And as he was preaching that sermon, the Holy Spirit was poured out in such a remarkable way that people literally hung onto their chairs because they felt like they were going to fall into the pit of hell. God's Spirit moved in such a dramatic way. Thousands of people in Northampton and the surrounding villages were changed forever 
because God worked in such a dramatic fashion. When we turn to Acts 2, one of the things we see is revival. After one sermon, what takes place? 3,000 people are converted, added to the church in one day because of the outpouring of God's Spirit. Acts 10 has been a picture in my mind for a long time. In Acts 10, Peter has sovereignly and dramatically been led to the house of Cornelius. He explains the gospel to Cornelius and his household. And we're told in Acts 10 that while he was preaching, his sermon wasn't even over yet, but while he was preaching, we read in Acts 10.44, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Another great outpouring of God's Spirit. And I've been just trying to imagine, what what would it be like if on a Sunday morning the Holy Spirit fell On Fox Lake Community Church, what would happen? It would be amazing. And I pray week after week after week, I really do, that God would pour out His Spirit, that God would make Himself known. I want my children, and I'm sure many of you want your children to know that God is mighty. I want my kids to see it. I want to see it with their, with their physical, visible eyes. God is mighty. And I pray for this to happen, and many have prayed for this to happen. For my last class, I, I've read much of Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he preached a lot in revival. He has a big, thick book just called Revival, and he longed for revival to come. And I think because his longing was so great and he didn't see it, I think he actually bordered on depression. And I can understand that because you want God to do more. He's worthy of so much more. You want Him to do more. And when it doesn't happen, you're like, oh, Lord, please. As I read through the book of Acts, I don't want it to just be history. I don't want us to go, wow, that's pretty neat what He did 2,000 years ago. I want us to read the book of Acts and say, Lord, could you do something similar in our day, in our church, in our midst? And here's what Lloyd-Jones knew. If God moves in a sovereign, mighty way, He can do more in five minutes than we can do in 40 years of ordinary ministry. Do you hear what Stephen said? 1991, if I got the numbers right, 3,000 Christians in Croatia, 2,000, 5,000 Christians. Today, 12 years later, 9,000. Christians? So that means they've been laboring over there for 12 years and they've added 4,000 more Christians. On the day of Pentecost, one day, one sermon, 3,000 were added. Oh, God did more in one day, or just about as much in one day as taken place in 12 years. But, as Stephen quoted, I planned on quoting as well, Zechariah. 410, let us not despise the day of small things. Another title that we could give to this message is 
ordinary, mundane, everyday, maybe even monotonous ministry. Or we could give it this title, On the Road to Revival. (laughs) While we're praying for revival, while we're praying for God to pour out in His Spirit in a dramatic way, what should we be committed to? Well, we can see at least five things from the passage before us this morning that we should be committed to. Obedience, fellowship, prayer, scripture, and ministry. Let's look at each of those in turn. First of all, obedience. Look how verse 12 begins. Then they, the apostles, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. What are they doing? They're being obedient to what Jesus had told them to do. He said, remain in Jerusalem. They're on the mounts of Olivet. So they're going back to Jerusalem where they are going to wait for the Holy Spirit to come, just like Jesus told them to do. Now, admittedly, that's just a small act of obedience. It's not all that dramatic, but they are being obedient. They're doing what Jesus had called them to do, and that's what we need to do. Sometimes just a step at a time. What does God want us to do? If he shows us what he wants us to do, then go ahead and do that step. The Steels this morning are praying for God's direction. Well, they're going to go to Mexico. That's going to be the first step. I can still remember when I went to college. I had no idea what I was going to do, but I thought, I'll go to college. This is where God wants me to go. I'm very clear about that. And then God, when the time is right, he'll show me the next step. But let's just be obedient. One step at a time, even if it's a small step, it is pleasing to God. And let's remember this. I mentioned this last week as well. This is important. When we are disobedient, even in the small things, Ephesians 4.30 reminds us we grieve the Holy Spirit. And we saw in 1 Thessalonians 5.19 that we quench the Holy Spirit. And putting those two together, we grieve God, we sadden God when we're disobedient, and we quench the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, which reminds us that we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we said last week, this is ongoing. It's in the present tense. Keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a command that we find in Ephesians. Also, I think it's worth pointing out that obedience is part of abiding in Jesus Christ. Many passages describe this, but this is what Jesus said in John 15.10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Part of abiding in the love of Christ and God is living in obedience, which means that disobedience is not abiding in the love of God. So it's very important that we walk in obedience. And it also means that everything we do in the Christian life relates to God. Obedience or disobedience is always connected to God. This is what Joseph Son said a little while ago. Uh, Joseph Son, little background, uh, Brian and I and some others saw him speak at a pastor's conference. Uh, back in the 60s, he was a pastor under communism in, in Romania, 
his life was threatened. He actually didn't know if he would live. He thought he might be um, a martyr. Uh, but he was interrogated mercilessly on many occasions. And this is what he said uh, one time to those who were interrogating him. He said, What is taking place here is not an encounter between you and me. This is an encounter between my God and me. My God is teaching me a lesson through you. I do not know what it is. Maybe he wants to teach me several lessons. I only know, sirs, that you will do to me only what God wants you to do. And you will not go one inch further because you are only an instrument of my God. Reminded me of what Luther said where he described the devil as God's devil. Meaning that the devil will only do what God wants him to do and what God allows him to do. And Satan is nothing but an instrument that God uses to bring about his purposes. Joseph Sahn then said with that perspective, Every day I saw those six pompous men as nothing more than my father's puppets. Isn't that a great perspective? They're just the father's puppets doing what he wants them to do. So we need to walk in obedience with God. Also, we need to be committed to fellowship. Fellowship. Verse 14, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. I love that phrase, one accord. It talks about harmony. In Psalm 133, 1, the psalmist said, How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together. Norbert? In unity. Thank you very much. I knew Norbert would know that verse because he quotes it all the time. But how true that is. To dwell together in unity. What a joy. A couple of the saddest verses in the Bible are found in Hebrews 24 and 25, where the author says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In the 60s, in the first century, the author was already saying, some Christians have already neglected to gather together with the believers on a regular basis. And can I just, can I say gently, lovingly, pastorally, but with conviction, it is important for believers to come together. God has created this world with a built-in rhythm. 6-1, 6-1, 6-1. Six days of work, one day of worship and rest and acts of mercy. Six days of work, one day of worship, rest, works of mercy. Six days of work, one day of worship. I think you get the picture. That is God's design. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's very important. Let me, let me just say frankly, I don't understand sporadic church attendance. I understand people get sick. I understand people go on vacations. But when it is sporadic on a regular basis, I don't understand this. 
Why would we not want to gather together in the presence of God with his people? And let me also say that it is a very rare thing to find a Christian who is on fire for Jesus Christ who does not gather together with fellow believers. I think about the only exception that I've seen to that rule is a very elderly person who, because of certain circumstances, can't get to church. They would like to go to church, but they can't get to church. Perhaps they don't have someone who will pick them up. But you can't burn for Jesus Christ if you're by yourself. R.C. Sproul used this illustration. I'm sure many of you have heard this before, but he said at one church picnic, he was talking to a gentleman who was missing church, and R.C. asked him about that. And he said, well, I don't need to go to church on a regular basis to be a Christian because it's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And, of course, that term is taken to an unbiblical extreme. And while they were talking, there was a charcoal fire there, and R.C. grabbed some tongs, and he grabbed the coal fire, or grabbed the coal that was on fire, and he took it away from the other one, and he put it to the side, and he just continued on in the conversation with that brother. And then a little later, he said, look at the coal. What has happened to our coal? And he said, the fire went out. And he said, yeah, why, why did the fire go out? Because it was taken away from the other coals and it can't burn brightly all by itself. It only burns as it gathers together with other coals. And that's how it works for Christians. We're off by ourselves. And we should say, I gotta gather together. I gotta come together with the other believers so that I can get fired up. And I hope one thing happens every week. You at least leave here a little more on fire for Jesus Christ than when you came in. We can't do this by ourselves. God has ordained it that we need one another. We are interdependent on purpose by divine design. That's God's purpose. I need you. You need me. I have gifts that you don't have. You have gifts that I don't have. It was a joy yesterday to watch men with gifts that I'm not even close to. It's beautiful to watch. You know, people talk, oh, look how the windows went out. I'm like trying to figure out, boy, if that was on me, how would I be able to do that? It'd take me forever to figure that out. What a joy to see the carpenters at, at work and, and to see Bob Johnson in the back working on the electrical. I'm like, I wouldn't touch that. I'd kill myself. <laughs> it was a joy to see all, all the different gifts come together. This is how the body of Christ is. We don't have all the gifts. We need one another. And it's a joy when all the believers come together and use their gifts and build up the body of Christ. Now, it's not always easy. Maybe I should say this as well. Just, just be, it's not always easy. Because you know what? There's some visitors here this morning, but here, here's the little secret. This is the church of sinners. <laughs> it is. We, this last week, some of us sinned. Some of us. All of us. And, and what happens when sinners come together? You have sinful conflicts. And what happens when there's sinful conflicts? Well, really, just basically one of two things. Either you work through that and you become closer and you become more sanctified or you run away. And you don't learn the lessons that God has for you. We need to work through difficulties. Fellowship is a joy. It is. It is pleasant when brothers dwell together in unity. It is miserable when brothers don't dwell together 
in unity, but this is life, and God uses these difficulties to refine us and to help us grow. But we have to be committed to the fellowship. We also have to be committed to prayer. That should be obvious, but the text is very clear. All these were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. They were praying. So much we could say about prayer. Let's, if I can just make three quick observations about prayer. Number one, pray about anything and everything. I really mean that. Pray about anything and everything. And set aside time for prayer. Maybe you have time in the morning. Maybe you have time in the evening. Maybe you have time while you're driving. Turn off the radio. And just take a few moments for prayer. And I would encourage you, especially on the way home. If you're at work and you're going home, pray before you go home. Ask God to use you to minister to your family. Shut off the radio. Pray. Also, let me say, respond to every prompting to pray. I heard this recently from Martin Lloyd-Jones. I also heard it recently from another pastor who talked about this. Respond to every prompting to pray. And we can consider it this way. Where do these promptings to pray come from? Well, there's three possible sources. Uh, Number one, they come from yourself. Maybe you just have a desire to pray. Uh, Number two, uh, they come from the Holy Spirit who is leading you to pray. Uh, Number three, they, they come from the devil who is leading you to pray. Now, given the fact that prayer could be defined as reaching up into heaven and pouring down the power of heaven into the situation, I think it's fair to conclude that we can cross out the third possibility. That Satan isn't going to and fro the earth back and forth, leading the people of God to pour out their hearts in prayer. I I think we can all agree on that. So, that leaves us with two other alternatives, ourselves or the Holy Spirit. But since we're called to pray without ceasing... Even, let's just say, even if we just, it's, it's not the Holy Spirit, we just have this desire to pray, pray. Because maybe it is the Holy Spirit. And perhaps many of you heard, and, and I hope you have heard stories of people who were going through a difficult time and someone prayed for them. I hope you've had the experience of praying for someone, and you didn't even know why. You just felt like you needed to pray for someone. And then you found out a week or two later that they were going through a difficult time at just that point in time. I hope you have that experience. That is not a coincidence. That is the Spirit of God using you to be a part of interceding on behalf of someone else. Pay attention to that dynamic. And one other thing I pray I want to say, and I think this is very important as well, Pray through every dream as well as every struggle. Let me say that again. Pray through every dream as well as every struggle. We all have dreams. We all have desires. We all have longings. Pray. I could say it this way. Pray until God answers or until God changes your mind. 
pray until God answers or he changes your mind. But don't just push those to the side. Because what you're doing is pushing frustration to the side. If you have unfulfilled dreams and you just push them to the side, you're just pushing that frustration to the side. If you have struggles you're going through and you don't pray through those, you're pushing those struggles to the side and you're not dealing with them. And God's not intervening and you're not working through those. Pray through those dreams. Pray through those struggles until God answers. And I know what this means. This means that for some things you're going to be praying for years. I understand that. But pray for years. Bring everything before God. Bring it before God. Until God answers again, or until God God changes your mind. And here we could use Jesus Christ as an example. Remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? The Father wanted him to go to the cross. That was his will. Jesus prayed earnestly, pouring out his heart to God, Blood vessels probably popping, blood coming forth because he was praying in such earnest, saying, Lord, if, if you could, could this cup actually pass? It's actually my desire that I not go to the cross. Is there any way around the cross? Is there any way that we could circumvent the cross and go in another direction? And he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed three times until he worked through that and was able to say, this is your will, Father, this is my will. So he was able to line up his will with the Father's will and go together. And maybe we should be comforted by that, which shows that it's not a sin to struggle with the will of God. I think we can say fairly that Jesus struggled with the will of God. The struggle itself is not sin. Struggling with the will of God or struggling with temptation is not sin. That's where we overcome that sin. And I've said this before, and I really believe this. The decisive victory of the cross really took place in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus met with the Father in prayer. Remember what Joseph Son said? Really, this is an encounter between me and my God. That's what the cross was. And that encounter between Jesus and his Father took place in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he worked through it through prayer. And the Father strengthened him, even sent an angel from heaven to strengthen him to do what he was called to do. And then he gets up with such resolution that he goes directly to the cross. And he never turns aside again. But that took place through prayer. And we need to do likewise. We also need to be committed to Scripture. Verse 15, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons in all, about 120, and said, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Now, it's fascinating that they are looking at the Scriptures. And of course, they learned this from Jesus. Uh, In Luke 24, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he opened up the Scriptures, the law, the prophets, wisdom literature, and explained to them all the things in Scripture concerning himself. And because of that Bible study method, we could say, that they learned from Jesus, they were applying that while they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to be poured out. And while they were studying the Scriptures, they learned a few things. They learned, first of all, or maybe they remember this from Jesus, that it was spoken of in the Psalms 
that one of the disciples would betray Jesus, and that turned out to be Judas. And then they kept studying, and they looked at Psalm 69, 25, and they said, oh, look at what it says right here. May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And they said, that applies to Judas. So he is not going to have anyone in his family replace him. And then they read another scripture, Psalm 109, 8. Let another take his office. And they deduced from scripture that Judas would have to be replaced and another would have to take his office. Now think about those scriptures. Tremendous detail. And if it wasn't for us right here in the book of Acts, I don't think we would have ever discovered that on our own. I'm sure somewhere there's a Bible scholar out there who would have figured it out. But I wouldn't have figured it out. I'll just be honest. I would have never figured that out if it wasn't right here in Acts. Tremendous detail, which tells me they were studying the Scriptures in earnest, that they're coming up with this. Also, maybe I should point out this. Notice what verse 16 said. The Scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. Who wrote the Bible? Caleb, Zach, you want to tell me? Who wrote the Bible? Thank you. <laughs> Holy men who were taught by the Holy Spirit. Question 15 in our catechism questions that we went through this morning. By the way, and the children's catechism, as you will find out, it is loaded with theology. Um, so I just want to encourage you, once again, go over these questions with your kids. Talk about them. It is really loaded with great theology. So here we have the inspiration of Scripture right here. Holy men spoke through the Holy Spirit, the dual authorship of Scripture. And there is more in Scripture than we can imagine. Um, again, I, I mentioned that I've been reading about Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, it took him nine years to get through the book of Romans. You think it took me a long time to get through John? <laughs> nine years on a Friday night going through the book of Romans. One gentleman said, boy, the Apostle Paul is going to be so amazed by all that you're able to get out of the Scriptures. That gentleman passed away. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, that man is now going to hear from the Apostle Paul himself. And what he is going to hear is that it's amazing how little people got out of his epistles when he put so much into them. And this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones said at the beginning of his study of Romans. My friends, this is a synopsis. <laughs> Not an in-depth study, a synopsis. Um, the scriptures are loaded with truth, riches, if we will take the time to mine them. And then uh, a final point. We should not only be committed to the scriptures but we should also be committed to ministry. Ministry, and specifically in Acts, what we have is the replacement of Judas. And they're going through the scriptures, um, as I pointed out, that say he had to be replaced, and another one would fill his spots. And what's given to us 
in Acts is the qualifications of an apostle. That's very important. Uh, because many today will refer to themselves as apostle so-and-so. Technically speaking, there is no such thing as an apostle today. There were only 12 apostles. Why 12? Why not 11? Why not 13? What is Jesus doing with 12 apostles? Creating a new Israel. Jesus is the new Israel creating new tribes out of the 12 apostles. So that's very important. Notice the qualifications of an apostle. And these come out as they consider who's going to replace Judas. Look at verse 21. So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. So there's the first qualification. To qualify as an apostle, you had to be, maybe I should point out, you had to be a man, and you had to be a man who was with Jesus from the time of Jesus' baptism till the time of his ascension. In that three-plus period of time, you had to be with the disciples the whole time. That's the first qualification. Second qualification, uh, you had to be with them that whole time. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Second qualification, you had to be with Jesus that whole time, and you had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus had to appear to you personally after his resurrection. And the third qualification is that you had to be personally and directly commissioned by Jesus Christ. And that's important. We, we sometimes use disciple and apostles interchangeably. We talk about the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles. Technically speaking, yes, the 12 apostles were disciples, but only 12 of them were designated apostles who were sent out by Jesus Christ. That's very important. Now, let me mention what some of you are thinking. What about the apostle Paul, thank you. See, I told you, I, I know what you're thinking out there. What about Paul? He wasn't with the disciples that whole time. He was a witness, eyewitness of the resurrection, at least not at first. And he wasn't, which is why he's called one unusually born. But here's what happened with the apostle Paul. While he didn't fit the first two criteria, he did qualify with the third criteria, Jesus Christ appeared to him personally and directly and commissioned him as an apostle. And here we could add a fourth qualification. And the apostle Paul was approved by the other apostles to be a legitimate apostle. So we have the 12 and then the unusual, abnormal apostle Paul. But someone today cannot fit any of those qualifications. If someone calls themselves an apostle today, we can't say, wait a second, I want this verified by the other 12 apostles that were personally commissioned by Jesus Christ. Let's go talk to them. And if we go talk to them and they say, yes, you're a legitimate apostle, then I'll accept everything you're saying. Let's go do that. Well, you know, we can't do that. There are not apostles today. And after James, the first apostle to be martyred, is killed, 
He does not have a replacement. He does not have a replacement. And all through church history, we look back at the apostles. So that's very important. What they do is very unique. But I think here, here's the application for us. We have to continue to do ministry. They're, they're waiting for the baptism of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, but they're not just sitting around waiting. They're being obedient. They're gathering together. They're encouraging one another. They're praying together. They're saturated in the Scriptures, pouring over them, and they're continuing on with ministry. They're putting leaders in place. That's important. We need to do that. On the road to revival, as we're praying for God to do a mighty work, we have to continue on with sometimes what is, honestly, the mundane work of ministry. Ministry. We have to get people in place. We have to get policies in place. We have to do the administrative work of ministry. By the way, I hate administration. I just, <laughs> but it has to be done, though. We, we have to do all those things as we are praying for God to do a work. And maybe we're only going to experience the quote-unquote ordinary work of God. But I hope we all are praying for an extraordinary work of God. I'm sure Stephen is praying, yes, I am happy with the ordinary work of God in Croatia. It's been wonderful to see the church slowly grow, grow, grow. But I want to see the mushroom explosion of growth. I want to see the church just explode. And I want to see it in my lifetime. I want to see it in my lifetime. I want to see God bring about another great awakening in America. I would like to see it. I would like to experience it. Maybe we'll just experience what we could call, I guess, a mini-revival, where God pours out His Spirit, and it's not as dramatic as the Great Awakening, but nonetheless, we know that God is moving among us. We can sense His presence. We know that He's working in our lives. But let's pray for God to work, to God to use us, and whatever God has for us. Let's just tell God, here I am. Use me however you see fit. Let, let us just surrender to God. Let us lose our lives so that we can find our lives. Again, let me quote from Pastor Joseph Son. He writes, During an early interrogation, I had told an officer who was threatening to kill me, Sir, let me explain how I see this issue. And by the way, before I go on with his quote, let me say that this didn't come easy. He didn't just say, Lord, here I am. If you want to kill me, that's okay. Here I am. It wasn't easy. It was difficult. He needed the encouragement of his wife, for example. Remember the encouragement of his wife? If God has called you to die, then you need to go forth and die. (laughs) Thanks, honey. (laughs) By the way, that actually is helpful. Unlike Job's wife who said, curse God and die. God is calling you to die, honey, then surrender to God. And God used that, encouraged him. And then he was able to say, Sir, let me explain how I see this issue. Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here is how it works. You know that my sermons on tape have spread all over the country. If you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know I died for my preaching. And everyone who has a tape will pick it up and say, 
I'd better listen again to what this man preached because he really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So, sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. After I said this, the interrogator sent me home. Another officer who was interrogating a pastor friend of mine told him, We know that Mr. Son would love to be a martyr, but we are not that foolish to fulfill his wish. I stopped to consider the meaning of that statement. I remembered how for many years I had been afraid of dying. I had kept a low profile because I wanted badly to live. I had wasted my life in inactivity. But now that I had placed my life on the altar and decided I was ready to die for the gospel, they were telling me they would not kill me. I could go wherever I wanted in the country and preach whatever I wanted, knowing I was safe. As long as I tried to save my life, I was losing it. Now that I was losing it, I found it. Another one of these great Christian paradoxes. When we lose our life, we actually find it. When we give it away, we actually find it and experience God working in us in all his fullness. So wherever God leads us, whatever God has for us, let's just place ourselves on the altar and say, Lord, here I am unreservedly. Do to me whatever you wish. And let me tell you, if you really can do that, there really is a freedom. There really is. If you fear God, you will fear nothing else. That's where boldness comes from. Fearing God alone who can destroy body and soul and hell. And if you have that fear, what can man do to you? Not much. He can only take away your physical life. That's all. And God will even use that. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the instruction that it gives. Father, help us to apply it to our lives. May this not just be head knowledge. Father, we don't want to just be smarter Christians. We want to be holier Christians. We want to be surrendered Christians. We want to be Christians who experience the abundant life in Jesus Christ. Father, may we experience and know all that you have for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.